chapter 6, Lord, we do pray that you would just bless this time in the study of your word, that we would be attentive and, Lord, still before you, and that you would take your word and work it deep within our hearts so that we would make application tonight, and, Lord, that your word would take root in our hearts and, and there would be fruit that would abound because of it. Lord, we know that your word is alive and it's powerful, it's truth. And, Lord, so we come here to hear your word, to take in, Lord, to be fed by you. So thank you that we're here, and we just ask that you would just touch our hearts deeply by your word, in Jesus' name, amen. So again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000, as we read in chapter 6, verse 1 of Second Samuel. And then verse 2, And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baali, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. And so as you study chapters 5 through 10 of 2 Samuel, I believe that this is really the height uh, of and, and the most blessed time in David's reign as he has been made king over all of Israel. And we saw that in chapter 5. In the first seven and a half years after the death of Saul, we know that David was king over the tribe of Judah there in Hebron, Hebron south of Jerusalem. And it would be after the death of Saul's son that the elders of all of the tribes of Israel came to David and said, we know that you have been made king over Israel. So they anointed him king at that time. And David, what he would do is he would go to um, conquer Jerusalem. It was a stronghold of the Jebusites. And it, it amazes me that Mount Moriah there, where Jerusalem would be built upon, and where the Jebusites at this time, a thousand years before the coming of Christ, the Jebusites had had that stronghold there ever since you know Joshua came into the land, and they were conquering the land and driving out the inhabitants. But that was one area that they did not take. And so the Jebusites, since the children of Israel crossed the Jordan River and came into the Promised Land, they had had that stronghold there, uh, Jerusalem, for over 400 years now. And they were confident, they were overconfident, because they told David, you're not going to be able to get to us and through our walls. The blind and the lame are going to be able to defeat you. So David said, whichever one of my men, as he issued that challenge to them, can go in and go up the water shaft, because you see the Jebusites, what they did is they dug a tunnel to bring their water source into the city walls. It was on that mountain. It was easily defendable. They had their water source inside the city wall, and they had a shaft that was about 45 feet deep. They just recently found that shaft in their excavations in that area. And it's a shaft that you can go, and we saw as we were in Israel last month. And it's amazing to think that Joab was able somehow to go through that tunnel, go up that shaft, and then he would enter into the city and open up the city gates. And, of course, David would come in with his men, and they would defeat the Jebusites. So now things are changing. He's going to make Jerusalem the capital of, of Israel. Uh, Jerusalem has been the capital of Israel for 3,000 years. They celebrated not long ago their 3,000th birthday. But he's going to bring the center of worship there um, to the city of David, to, to Mount Zion, to Jerusalem. And of course, later on, it's going to be Solomon that's going to build the temple there on Mount Moriah. So what David is doing is he's preparing for that. And as he's in 
this time where he's tremendously being blessed by the Lord. He is uh, defeating his enemies all around him. He's bringing the nation into great power and great prosperity. And we know that chapters 6 and 7, I think, are two of the greatest days in David's reign. When he brings the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, we're going to see as we continue to read here that there is going to be a setback, but David is going to bring the ark eventually to Jerusalem. And then in chapter 7, as God makes a covenant with David, as we're going to see tonight. But let's continue reading as David is going to bring the ark of the Lord uh, to Jerusalem. Now, you recall that the ark of the covenant was that one furnishing that was in the Holy of Holies. You see, when Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt into Mount Sinai, there he made a covenant with his people. And also we know that the Lord would begin to establish a method by which the people could come and worship him. And so the Lord said to Moses, Moses, you build me a tabernacle according to the pattern that I'm going to show you. And so that's what Moses did. It was not the people that came to the Lord and said, hmm, Lord, we kind of got this good idea. What we want to do is we want to build this tabernacle, and we think this is what it should look like, and these are the furnishings, and this is the sacrifices that we should do on your behalf. It wasn't that people that initiated that. It wasn't according to the pattern of what Moses came up with, but we know very clearly and very specifically from the book of Hebrews that the pattern was shown to Moses as the Lord came, and he initiated and that's the wonderful thing about our God. He initiates, we respond. So Moses, you're going to build a tabernacle so I can dwell with my people, I can meet with my people. And so that's where we see in the book of Exodus, very specifically and in details, is given the pattern of the tabernacle and the furnishings that were there. And we know that the tabernacle in the wilderness wandering was a temporary structure. It was made of animal skins. It was able to be folded down and, and carried away because the children of Israel were on the march. And whenever that pillar of fire... Uh, by uh, night and the pillar of cloud by day would move uh, the presence of God in the midst of the camp of Israel, what they would do is they would pack everything up and they would move until uh, the pillar would stop. The Lord was leading them. But we know that in that tabernacle, there was two rooms. There was the outer sanctuary or the holy place where the menorah was, the seven-branch golden menorah, the shewbread table, and the altar of incense. And then there was a veil, and behind that veil was the Holy of Holies, or the inner sanctuary, and that's where the Ark of the Covenant sat. It was just a chest, a box, about three feet long and two feet wide and a couple of feet high, made of Achaia wood, overlaid with gold, and then there was a lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant that was called the Mercy Seat. It contained the cherubim. It was made of pure gold, and that was the only furnishing that was in the inner sanctuary or the Holy of Holies. We do know from Leviticus chapter 16 that it was the high priest that was the only one that was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year on the Day of Atonement to make atonement as he sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat. And so the Ark of the Covenant was a very important furnishing. And the Lord said, I'll dwell between the cherubim. So that's where the tangible presence of God was as he met with his people, as atonement was made on behalf of the people. So it was there in the wilderness wandering. The tabernacle 
then as the children of Israel went into the promised land, would be at Gilgal for a while, and then eventually would go to Shiloh. And it's interesting that when you look at how the children of Israel camped, according to Numbers chapter 2, you see it's different than what the Ten Commandment movie you know, shows us. You know, Charlton Heston, and they're leaving Egypt, and it's all this mass of people that are leaving. It says to us very specifically there in the book of Exodus that they would leave in orderly ranks. And there was a very specific way in which they were to march through the wilderness according to their tribes and in their standards as, as their group of tribes would be together. And then they would camp in a certain manner as, as well. And there would be three tribes, according to Numbers chapter 2, that would camp on the east side of uh, and then three more on the south side and three more on the west side and then three on the north side. In the middle of the camp was the tabernacle. And in the middle of the camp, as the tabernacle was there, was the tribe of Levi, Moses and Aaron. And it was symbolizing that the Lord was in the midst of his people. When they moved that tabernacle to Shiloh, Shiloh was kind of in the middle of the nation. So again, it symbolized that the Lord was still in the midst of his people, even though they were spread out and they had received their allotments. So there was the Ark of the Covenant in Shiloh for about 400 years. And as you recall, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, it's towards the end of the days of the judges. And as the, the people were not right with God, they were still involved with idol worship. They they had hearts that were turned away from the Lord. They were not right with the Lord, and they had been defeated by the Philistines. So somebody comes up in 1 Samuel chapter 4 with this bright idea. They said, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant. Let's go get it, and it will defeat the Philistines. And so you can see in that terminology, as you read there, they had reduced God to an it. And they said, this relic, this Ark of the Covenant, is going to bring us victory. And you see, sometimes people do that today, don't they? They will look to a religious relic or ritual of some sort to find favor with God, to get the attention or the approval of God. And what God wants is our devotion. He wants our hearts. That's what he wants. And the wonderful truth about Christianity is this, and keep this in mind, that Christianity isn't about religion. It's about relationship. It's about being devoted to him and loving him and knowing him and being submitted to him. And that's what the Lord wanted from the children of Israel. They said, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant will bring us victory rather than trusting in the Lord because he had made his covenant with them at Mount Sinai. And recalls we went through those chapters that the Lord said, follow me and believe in me, be submitted to me, and I'm going to give you victory. I'm going to bless you. And there is blessing as we follow after the Lord and our hearts are devoted to him. So they go to battle. They lose the Ark of the Covenant, of course, as we saw in the text. And there was a great slaughter among the children of Israel. We know that at that time, Eli fell over dead when he heard that the Ark of the Covenant had been captured. Uh, Eli, who was 98 at that time, had judged Israel for 40 years. We also know that uh, it was his daughter-in-law that gave birth uh, to a son. Uh, it was Eli's two sons who were priests that were killed in that battle. And uh, it was uh, Eli's daughter-in-law that heard the news that her husband was dead. And she went into labor and gave birth to a son. And she ended up dying because of that uh, delivering that child. But she called that child, that son Ichabod, which means the glorious departed. The Ark of the Covenant has been captured. The glorious departed. But here's the thing. The glory had departed a long time ago, before that day. Because the people weren't devoted to the Lord. And the Lord wasn't in their hearts. 
So we know that the Philistines would take the Ark of the Covenant. They would take the Ark of the Covenant to Ashdod, one of the major cities of the Philistines, and they put it in their temple that was dedicated to Dagon. Dagon was the fish god. And we know that they would set the Ark of the Covenant there at the foot or in front of Dagon. And what that means there, the word and the phraseology there, as you read in 1 Samuel chapter 5, is that they put the Ark of the Covenant there because it was placed in front of Dagon as a way of saying that the God of Israel is in submission to Dagon, our God. You see, their thinking in ancient times was this, that if a country took over another country or defeated their enemies, then their God was more superior than their enemy's God. And that's what they were saying when they put the Ark of the Covenant there. They were saying Dagon is superior to the God of Israel. Well, the lords of the Philistines came into the temple of Dagon the next day, and Dagon, that, that idol, had fallen over. So they propped it back up. Not much of a God when you've got to prop your God back up. So the next day, they came in, and Dagon was fallen over again, and, and his hands were broken, and his head was broken off. And so Dagon, this fish god, uh, was you know, all broken up. So they said, we need to move the Ark of the Covenant. At that time, the Lord began to strike the people of Ashdod with a plague. So they moved it to Gath, another major city of the Philistines. At that time, Gath was being struck by this plague. So they moved it to Ekron, and the people of Ekron said, oh no, the, the Ark of the Covenant is here. Why did you bring it here for us to die? And there the Ark of the Covenant was passed around like a hot potato from city to city in a great destruction, as we read there in 1 Samuel, what happened to the people of the Philistines because God was bringing judgment on them. Now here's the interesting thing. The Philistines, they knew what God had done to the Egyptians because when they first, the children of Israel, brought the Ark of the Covenant into their camp there at Shiloh and, and, and they were going to use it to try to defeat the Philistines, the Philistines said, oh no, God has come into their camp. The, their gods had defeated the Egyptians. So they had heard the stories about how God poured out the plagues upon the Egyptians, and he parted the Red Sea. They knew those stories for 400 years. It was passed on from generation to generation to generation. And here God is having this plague go throughout the Philistines. And they're saying, oh no, we got to get rid of this thing. Rather than repenting and surrendering to the God of Israel. You see, when the Lord's would bring the children of Israel out of Egypt, he told Moses, Moses, I'm going to strike the Egyptians so that the nations may know that I am the Lord. And it was when the children of Israel crossed that Jordan River and sent spies into Jericho, and Rahab was talking to the spies, she said, we heard what your God did. He parted the Red Sea. He struck the Egyptian chariots. And we know that your God is true and that he is going to give you the land. And she would make the God of Israel her God as she's recorded in the Hall of Faith, Rahab, recorded in the genealogy of Jesus. So here the Ark of the Covenant was captured. What they did at that time, and it plays into our story, and keep this in mind, that they put the Ark of the Covenant, the Philistines did, said, we've got to get rid of the Ark of the Covenant, send it back to Israel. They put it on a cart with two milk cows. They sent it off to Beth Shemesh, and then eventually it would go to Gertjef Jerim, about 10 miles from Mount Zion, or from Jerusalem, and there it was for 20 years. When Saul was ruling over Israel, we discuss how Saul 
neglected his responsibility to the nation spiritually, militarily. He allowed the Philistines to grow strong and capture some of the cities of Israel. Uh, he was one that didn't care about the spiritual condition of the nation because he was relentlessly pursuing David. That's what consumed him. And so there the Ark of the Covenant sat in Kerjeth Jerim for 20 years. So David's now wanting to bring it back. So verse 3, we read that they set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadad, which was built on a hill, and Uzzah and Ahio and the sons of Abinadad drove the new cart. So what did they do? They did what the Philistines did. The Philistines put the Ark of the Covenant on a cart, sent it back to Israel. Here we see that David does the same thing. And as we continue reading here in verse 4, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadad, which was on the hill, and accompanying the Ark of God was Ahio, went before the Ark. And then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments, of fir wood, on harps, on string instruments, and tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. And when they had come to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the ox stumbled. And then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him for there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. In verse 9, it says that David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So what we see here is the ark is put on a cart. It begins to make its way over to Jerusalem, and it is brought out with great joy, and there's um, this celebration. There's lots of music that's going on. There's this big parade that's taking place, but all of a sudden, the ox stumbles, Uzzah puts his hand on the Ark of the Covenant to keep it from falling over, and he's struck dead. And he goes down, and all of a sudden, everything stops. And it's interesting, it says that David becomes angry, but verse 9, it is based on fear. In other words, he was confused. He's saying, how can we bring the Ark of God up? And you see, as he was there desiring to please the Lord, he was desiring to honor the Lord. He's worshiping the Lord. All this is going on, and all of a sudden it stops, and Uzzah goes down as he touched the ark, and David doesn't understand it. So he becomes angry. But then he feared the Lord. You know, one of the things that we don't hear much about in the church today is the fear of the Lord. And one of the things that we need to remember as Christians that the beginning of wisdom, as Proverbs tells us, is to fear the Lord that it's a healthy thing when you have a healthy fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord doesn't mean that we walk around just overly afraid and trembling that, that God's going to strike us dead. There are some Christians that I talk to, they will come to me and they're so fearful of God's judgment. If they make a wrong move, that God must be judging me or he's going to get me. Kind of like he's a mean old man in heaven with a long white beard leaning over the banister of heaven with his lightning bolts. Going to zap them if they get out of line. And that's an unhealthy fear. We belong to the Lord. We need to understand the love and the grace and the mercy of our Lord. But here's the thing. He is also the creator of all things. He is all-knowing and all-powerful. We worship and are submitted to an awesome God. So it's a healthy thing to remember that, to have a reverence for the Lord, the fear of the Lord. That's what it means to, to have a fear of the Lord, to reverence Him. Lord, you are the creator of the universe. You are all-knowing, all-powerful. 
And we worship you, Lord. We're submitted to you. And so David here has the fear. He's angry. Now, I just want to say a little side note here. He's confused. He doesn't know what's going on. And sometimes there are things that go on in our lives that say, why, Lord? And, and we're upset in our hearts about it. I do not like when I hear ministers that say, well, you know what? And when you get angry at God, what you need to do is you need to forgive God. And I shudder at that. Because the implication is this, that God did something wrong. And if we are ones that think that, God, i got to forgive you because you did something wrong in my life, then Satan's going to take it and he's going to blow the doors wide open on that. And he's going to get you to believe that if you can't trust God in this area, then you can't trust him in other areas of your life. And you're going to have doubt and confusion that's going to take place as you walk with him. We need to understand that we don't always know why the Lord allows things to happen in our lives. We don't always understand why we go through difficulties or trials or pain or through loss. But we can know that the Lord loves us. And he gave us the very best in sending his son to die on Calvary's cross for you and for me. He loves you and me so much. That's why he went to the cross, Jesus. Because of his love for you. And because of his love for you then, and he saved you. As he went to Calvary's cross, don't you know that he loves you now? And his word is true that he promises to work all things for good for those who love him or are called according to his purposes. We don't understand everything that we go through, but I do know this, that the book of Revelation declares that when we get to heaven, we will all say together, righteous and true are your judgments. Righteous and true are your decisions, O Lord. We're not going to go to heaven and say, how come and why this? And when I get to heaven, I'm going to tell God off about that. And there's going to be none of that that will take place. But together we will say, righteous, right on. And true are your decisions, your judgments, O Lord. You are holy, you are true, you are right. And he's going to do the very best for you and for me because he has eternity's perspectives that are in in mind as he works in our lives and so when you're confronted with those things that you don't understand fall back on the things that you do understand and that is his love for you and the faithfulness of god in your life to wait on him and you can fully trust in him and rest in his love so here is david he doesn't know what's going on but we do know that as david was in this situation first of all he does something that you and i need to do when something happens in our lives that, Lord, why is this happening? Why is this thing dead, this situation, or whatever it might be for you and for me? Well, we read in verse 10, So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. So this is what happens. David waits. He says, We need to stop. And he waits. And when you have things or you're faced with circumstances in your life where you don't know what's going on, maybe you're confused, maybe you don't understand, then what you're to do is you wait on the Lord and you search the scriptures. And that's what David did. You go to the Lord. And you ask him for understanding. You go to the Lord and you search the scriptures and his promises. And you see, David found something. We know that uh, according to 
First Chronicles that David did go to the Lord. First Chronicles 15 confirms that. And as David went to the Lord, he found out that he was doing it the wrong way. And we know again from the book of Numbers, and as you go through the book of Numbers, the book of Numbers gives all the details on how they were to you know, set up their camps, the responsibilities of the Levites. And we know that the priests, who were the direct descendants of Aaron, they were the ones that did the sacrifices there in the, in the tabernacle. They were the ones that did the duties that are prescribed for them there in the book of Leviticus at the tabernacle. But every priest, being a Levite, not every Levite was a priest because there were others that were of different families of the tribe of Levi. There was the Maronites and the Gershonites and the Kohathites. And in chapter 4 of Numbers, it is told to those families, those Levites who came along and assisted the priests in their ministry. And they would have certain responsibilities. And so it was the Maronites, they were to carry the boards and, and the cords and things like that. The Gershonites, they were to carry the curtains when they would move the tabernacle. The Kohathites, that family, what they were to do is they were to carry the furnishings on their shoulders. And so the priests would go in, they would cover up the furnishings there in the tabernacle whenever they were to move the tabernacle. And the Levites would go in and they would bear the ark of the covenant on their shoulders because the ark of the covenant being boxed had these rings on the corners and they would put these poles into the rings, again, made of a wood lined with gold. And then the Levites would carry the ark of the covenant on their shoulders. You recall when the children of Israel came into the promised land that it was the Levites that were bearing the ark of the covenant on their shoulders as they stepped into the Jordan River and the flow of the river stopped. So that was the way they were supposed to do it. David should have known that it's the Levites that are going to carry the Ark of the Covenant, but he was doing it the Philistine way. He was doing it the world's way. And there's a very important thing for us to consider in that. And it's simply this, that oftentimes we would want to do things. Maybe it's something we want to do for the Lord. Maybe as a church, maybe as your family, maybe you individually. You're desiring to honor the Lord. You're desiring to please the Lord. That's what David was wanting to do. He did it with great excitement, but he did it the wrong way. He did it the world's way. And that's why it's so important, and I know that I sound redundant in saying this, that we need to know God's word because in here, he tells us how it is that we are to worship him, how it is that we are to please him in our marriages how it is that we please him in raising our children how it is that we please the lord in the workplace or running a business how it is that we please the lord when we serve him in every area of our lives he tell us how it is that we are to do it and we don't do it the world's way but we do it god's way and the commandments and the principles and the truth is given to us as we go through this book. And that's why it's so important that we know the word of God and apply it in our lives. That's what wisdom is. It's not just knowing it, but then applying it in your life. Knowing the word of God as to every area of your life. Lord, this is how you would want me to serve you. This is how you desire for me to raise my children. Lord, this is how I know that it pleases you in my marriage. But you see, oftentimes what can happen is we look to the Philistine way or we look to the world's way. And we need to be careful and we need to do it God's way. 
And that's what David was doing. He was doing it the Philistine way. And what will happen is, if we say, okay, God, this is what you tell me, the instructions that you give to me in my circumstance, in my situation, but you know what? I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to kind of go the way of the world or the philosophy of the world. You know what will happen? You're going to stumble. And there's going to be a deadness that's going to take place in your spiritual walk with the Lord. Uzzah put his hand up on the ark. And there are even sometimes in situations where we try to manipulate the situation where we think, God, I've got to give you a hand. And God is saying, I don't need, you know, your help. I'm going to help you. I'm your helper. I want you to submit. I want you to do it my way because my ways are true in the best ways. And for us to experience that abundant life that Jesus promised for us, that is a life of blessing, a life of peace, a life of real joy, of gladness. Because David did it the way that the Lord told him to. They would carry it on the shoulders of the Levites. And at the end of verse 12, it says, they came to the city of David with gladness. You want real gladness and joy in your life? Then do it the Lord's way. And according to his word. And you will experience that joy and gladness and that abundant life that Jesus has for you. So here they go. They, they go and they're making their way about 10 miles to the city of David from Kirjath Jerim that sits up on a hill, actually. And so it was, verse 13, when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. And then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting with the sound of the trumpet. And so we see that every six paces they would stop and sacrifice that amazes me david will never get to jerusalem at this rate every six paces but david did that and he would sacrifice and he would take the time and expend the energy to do this because david was a worshiper and he did it with joy and gladness as you come here tonight on Wednesday night, it takes time, it takes sacrifice. As you come in, as you worship the Lord tonight, as you're taking in His Word, it would have been probably easier for a lot of you just to go home from work and get something to eat and, and um, you know, be at home. But you've made the time, you've made the sacrifice to be here. And it ends up being a long day, but you know it's a good place for you to be. And that's where you want to be, in a place where you're with God's people, worshiping the Lord. And here is David doing this. I don't care if it takes a long time, but we're going to worship the Lord and we're going to sacrifice and we're going to honor the Lord as we're bringing the ark up. And we read in verse 16, Now the ark of the Lord came into the city of David. Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And so they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. And then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, as um, actually verse 18, when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Then verse 19, then he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed, everyone to his house. So David brings everyone into worship and to this fellowship meal. 
They offer burnt offerings, which we know from Leviticus chapter 1 speaks of consecration to God. They would offer the animal, and the whole animal was consumed, and it symbolized that you and I, as we are living sacrifices unto the Lord, that we're to be a burnt offering, if you would. That is, Lord, I want you to have all of me. I'm holding nothing back, all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength that I love you with. Total consecration to the Lord, devotion to the Lord. That's what the burnt offering spoke of. And then the peace offering speaks of fellowship with the Lord. And you and I have fellowship with Jesus Christ. We can come into the throne room of God, as Hebrew declares, because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We're going to remember that as we come to the communion table tonight. What Jesus Christ has done for us in allowing his body to be broken and his blood shed for the forgiveness of sin. And now we have also relationship with the Father. We can come boldly into the Holy of Holies into the presence of God with confidence, not our own confidence, but our confidence is in Christ and what he has done for you, for me, in going to Calvary's cross. We have fellowship with God now. Do we realize what a marvelous and incredible opportunity and privilege that we have? Can you imagine Aaron, the high priest, as we discuss, he was the high priest and all the other high priests that followed after him they were only allowed to go into the Holy of Holies once a year for a short time after elaborate washings and cleansings. But you and I as a Christian, because of the blood of Jesus Christ, as Hebrew 10 declares, that we can now come boldly into the Holy of Holies, and we can do it any time we want, we can stay as long as we want, and we can do it as many times as we want. Are you one that comes to the presence of God, into the Holy of Holies, to sit at the feet of the Lord, to fellowship with Him, And I pray that that is your heart. Lord, I want to give you all of my life to you, every area of my life, and I want to fellowship with you because it's a marvelous and incredible opportunity and privilege that we have. And if Aaron the high priest were here and he was hearing this, he would say, wow, how incredible. What you on this side of the cross have because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So we see that he comes up with this great... um, celebration and worship to the lord and his first wife saul's daughter micah verse 16 despised david in her heart can i ask you a question do people despise you because you come out on wednesday night or you go to church on sunday morning or you're involved in serving the lord in some way or because you have your morning devotions and and they know that you're one that you read your bible perhaps at lunchtime when you got a few minutes while you're on break that you're there and you're reading your Bible and, and do they despise you for that? And people will despise you. What do you mean you go to church on Wednesday night? Nobody goes to church on Wednesday nights. Especially when there's, you know, American Idol going on. And who wants to go to church on Wednesday night and study the Old Testament? What's up with that? And they'll despise you because maybe you are committed to going to church. Maybe you made a commitment, you and your family as Husbands, fathers, you have said, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And we're going to be in fellowship. And there are going to be those in your family and others that are linked to you in your life that are going to despise you because you're a worshiper of the Lord. And you're one that comes into fellowship with the Lord and desiring to learn of the Lord. And that's what happened here with Micah, his first wife, as we continue reading um, in verse 20. Then David returned to bless 
his household. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How glorious was the king of Israel today uncovering himself uh, in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. So David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me instead of your father and all his house to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord, over Israel. Therefore, I will play the music before the Lord. And I will be even more undignified than this and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken by them, I will be held in honor. And verse 23, as we finish the chapter, therefore Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. Here she's complaining to David. David, you've made a fool out of yourself. You know, you've set aside your royal robes and look at yourself. And David rebukes Michael here. He, he says, your father, Saul, was rejected by God and placed me as king. And I'm going to humble myself before the Lord because he has lifted me up. And what David was saying in that response as he rebuked Micah was this, that worship is a priority in my life. And I have humbled myself to worship. And if it seems undignified, I will even do so more because that is a priority to give my heart to the Lord in worship. Sometimes we can think, I I can't lift my hands to the Lord when we're worshiping. What are people going to think? What's the person behind me going to think? I don't want to close my eyes. But what my prayer is for you and for me as we come together in worship and as we worship corporately, that you would be free to do those things, that you would humble yourself truly and say, Lord, I'm not going to worry about what the person in front of me or next to me or beside me is going to think. I want to lift my hands to you. Oh, I've been wanting to do it, but I can't do it. It might be undignified. Don't want to be laughed at. No, for you to be free to worship, to sit and close your eyes, whatever it might be. And it's the position of your heart that's what's really important. But priority of worship, I hope, is a part of this fellowship and also as your family gathers together for family devotions and you individually, because worship is something that we're going to do for all eternity. We see that in the book of Revelation. Where do we see the church? They're worshiping the Lord in that heavenly scene of Revelation chapters 4 and 5. And we're going to be worshiping the Lord for all eternity, just marveling at Him And you know what? Worship is something that it just encourages and builds up the soul to give that praise and worship to Him. But it takes a humbling. It takes a humbling and saying, Lord, I'm going to do that because I want to do it and making it a priority of your life. And you know what will happen to us if worship is something that is not a part of your spiritual life, uh, an important part? There's going to be a barrenness that's going to take place. Micah was barren. And there will be a barrenness that will take place in your heart and in your soul if worship is not a priority in your life. So here is David bringing the Ark of the Covenant up. And in chapter 7, it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See, now I dwell in the house of cedar, but the Ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. And then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So as we open up chapter 7, we see that um, it's a quiet time for David. 
God had given him rest from all his enemies at this moment, and he's dwelling in the house of cedar. You recall that he had made a covenant with the king of Tyre up north who supplied those, those cedars of Lebanon, that wood to David and carpenters and masons to build David a house. And so David's looking and saying, I'm living in this mansion, I'm living in this house, and the Lord dwells in curtains. Now, David knows, just as we know, that, that a tent cannot contain God. That later on, after the building of the temple in Jerusalem, David's son Solomon building the temple, and he gave that prayer of dedication, we know that it's Solomon that said, we know that a building cannot contain you. That, Lord, that the whole universe cannot contain you. You're the creator of the universe, and you hold it all in the palm of your hand. But it was a place where, where God would meet with his people. It was where the tangible presence of God was. There in, in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, as he dwelt between the cherubim. And so here is David saying, you know what? I want to build the Lord a temple. It's a quiet time. God had given him rest from all his enemies at this moment. David is ex, you know, experiencing the blessings of the Lord. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it amazing that the Lord brought David from hiding in caves to resting in his palace. I can't help but think of another individual when you read in the book of Daniel that it was Nebuchadnezzar that was in his palace, but he wasn't resting at all. Matter of fact, he was very troubled because he had had a dream. You know, maybe you're here tonight and you're thinking, man, things have been kind of rough the last few days or weeks or months or years feel like I've been in caves or in a pit or whatever it might be. I want you to know that you, as you keep trusting in God and resting in Him and looking to Him, that He will bring you to that place of rest. And maybe you may look around and you see those who, who aren't following the Lord, interested in the Lord, don't believe in the Lord. And maybe you might think that, man, you know, they've got everything that's going great and everything's hunky-dory and it seems like they're blessed all the time. No, they're not. They will be troubled in their heart. And the thing about it is, is here was Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel that was the most powerful king on the face of the earth, had everything that anybody would want, and yet he was empty in his soul. You have the Lord in your life and in your heart. And you do what David did as you just worship the Lord, as you took, look to him and as you trust in him and as you stand on his promises. And he's going to bring you to that place of rest. So David has that, that rest that's taken place and he wants to do something special for God because he was concerned for God's glory. And so he's wanting to build a temple. So here is Nathan. We're introduced to this prophet, Nathan, for the first time. Nathan's going to be the one that's going to be you know, the spiritual leader to David right now. And Nathan says to, to David, do all that is on your heart. And we know that it is going to be the Lord that comes to Nathan and says, Nathan, you spoke prematurely. It's not David that's going to build the house. It's going to be his son Solomon's going to build the house. But I want to leave us with this tonight, and then we'll finish the chapter next week. And that is sometimes we can look at our situation saying, everything's going great. And God is blessing, and God is doing great things. And, and I want to do something special for God. And we think, you know what, as we tell others, they say, go ahead, do what's on your heart. But here's the thing, that we need to make sure we check in with the Lord, right? Because maybe the Lord doesn't want you to do that thing. 
And oftentimes in our own lives or even in church and the ministry, we say, Lord, we're going to do this special thing for you, so we want you to get behind us and bless it, rather than, Lord, do you want us to do this thing? Are you opening the doors? Are you giving us a peace that rules in our hearts? And then we want to get behind you because we know that you're going to bless it. And so perhaps as you're praying about certain things, you get, you're excited about, make sure that, Lord, this is truly what you want me to do. Because we can bowl ahead, you know, in, in doing those things for the Lord without checking in. They're good things. This is a good thing that David wants to do. But David, you're not going to build the temple. David, what you're going to do is your son is going to build the temple. You're a man of war. You've got bloodied hands. Your son, who's a man of peace, is going to build the temple. And it is Nathan that's going to be corrected and come back and give a message to David, but we're going to see that it's going to be a very special message as well, and we'll cover that next week. As Father, we just thank you that we can come to you, and Lord, you desire to, to guide us and direct us in our lives, and Lord, that we know that you will speak to us. And Father, that tonight, as is, is we have studied your word, Lord, I'm so thankful that, that we can come into your presence. We can fellowship with you. We can, Lord, give our hearts to you. We have a relationship with you through Jesus Christ. Father, I pray if there's any of us that are in this room, that as we get ready to come to the communion table, Lord, we do want to have a reverence for you and what your son did in, in dying on Calvary's cross for us. We don't want to just go through an exercise or this is what we do every month. And, but Lord, truly, that we're remembering, we're holding those elements. This is the new covenant in your blood. Blood that was shed for many for forgiveness of sin. The elements that symbolize his body broken for us, the sufferings that Jesus went through and that we would take that with seriousness. And Father, I pray that everyone in this place or out in the coffee shop or, Lord, if they're going to listen to this message on the radio, that hearts would be truly committed to you, surrendered to you. Father, I pray if there's anyone here listening to this message that, that maybe they haven't done that, that you would know the gospel is this, that you cannot save yourself. The children of Israel, as we read and talked about, they tried to save themselves, but it's only Jesus Christ who went to the cross that can save you. And the scripture says that you are to repent and turn to him and surrender to him. And you can do that right where you're at. If, if you don't know what would happen if you were to die today or the Lord was to come back for his church, if you were going to heaven, you can know. It comes by you in your heart surrendering to him. Jesus said, repent, turn to me. Quit going the direction you're going. And, and quit going the direction of the world and the ways of the world. But surrender to him, your heart. And come in faith. You can't earn salvation. You can't work for it. It comes by faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. You pray in your heart, Jesus, be my Lord and Savior. For you are the Lord of all lords. You are the Savior of the world. And I believe that you're the Son of God who died for me on Calvary's cross for my sins. Forgive me, Jesus. Forgive me for my sins. And Jesus, I believe that you're alive. You rose from the grave. And you're speaking to my heart right now.
And Father, I thank you for those who perhaps in their hearts are praying that or later on would pray that as they hear this message. And Lord, as we get ready to open up the communion table that, that we as Christians that we would come again with a heart of true worship.